With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This is Bless You Boys Podcast 130 with special guest Dan Dickerson. It was recorded September 26, 2014. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Welcome to the Bless You Boys Podcast. We're the editorial staff of BlessYouBoys.com, SB Nation's Detroit Tigers blog. Kicks around the past week of Detroit Tigers baseball. This is a jam-packed show with lots of playoff talk and a very, very special guest hook slide. So, oh, and first off, let me get that introduction out of the way. Of course, joining me as always is the man I like to call the king of the west side of Michigan, and that is hook slides. How things? Uh, you know, in light of today's guest, I'm going to have to relinquish the title, <laughs> the King of the West Side, but we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. All right. Uh, first, first, a little bit about the show. Uh, you want to contact us, uh, email. Uh, we're available at bybtigers at gmail.com or bybpodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter, at Bless You Boys. Uh, it's a joint account run by most of the editorial staff, myself and Hookslide included. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash byb.tigers. As always, just search for Bless You Boys on Twitter and Facebook. Like us, follow us, and we try to uh, post a lot of entertaining stuff. Uh, I guess with all that out of the way, uh, Hookslide, we got some very entertaining stuff coming right up if you want to get the introduction out of the way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, joining us today on the show is a voice that probably needs no introduction to those of you who are familiar with the Tigers radio broadcast. Uh, he's been the Tigers play-by-play announcer on the radio since 2003, so this would be going into his 12th season. And uh, actually, uh, I, I just realized in doing some research this week that he began his radio career in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So welcoming to the show today, uh, Dan Dickerson. How are you doing, Dan? I'm great, guys. How are you? Just fine. So I, I, tell me just a little bit about that uh, that start at WMAX in Grand Rapids. What were you doing for them? <laughs> First job out of college, and uh, it was an operation run by very nice people who had, well, very limited budget, let's say. Uh, our typing paper sometimes was the back of press releases uh, because we had no clean typing paper. So we'd use the back of a press release as our typing paper to type scripts for our newscast. Uh, back in the days when, yes, there were typewriters. <laughs> so uh, it was a great experience. It only lasted a year because they, they changed formats to uh, all news to gospel. So I, I moved on to bartending and waiting tables for a little bit. 
but it was a great experience because it let me do just about everything, run the board, anchor, uh, report out the street. Uh, the Jildar Ford Museum opened up that fall that I started in 1980. And, you know, we did a live broadcast, which basically ran a court about 150 feet out to the uh, fire escape. We watched the parade go by. So uh, it was a great experience. And that, uh, you know, a little after that, I went to WCUZ Radio back in the day when, you know, there were full-service radio stations. In small right. market, and, mm-hmm. I, and right. again, uh, had a real chance to to do a lot there. They let me do. I, mean, I was always in news because that's where the jobs were. I always wanted to do sports, and you know, at CUZ for seven years, working with some terrific people. Uh, I got a chance to do a little bit of everything again, and just uh, you know, kind of build the skills, and uh, to the point where you know, you could land a job in the late eighties back in Detroit. Right, right. You're taking me back to my childhood as a Grand Rapids resident and native here, so it's fun to have that little that, that little thing in common. So, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you, you know, obviously you've seen a lot of great baseball in the 12 seasons that you've been up there in that booth doing the play-by-play, and I, you know, I think for a lot of us, your uh, calls of certain, you know, dramatic moments have become kind of intertwined with the moments themselves. The one signature call that always comes to my mind is uh, the the Maglio walk-off home run in the 2006 uh, championship series. Can you kind of take us back to that moment and, and tell us, kind of relive that for us? Tell us what you saw. Sure, because it was, uh, you know, the series was 3-0 Tigers, so you're pretty sure they're going to win the series, but you also wanted them to win it at home. That was game four. So it's 3-3 going to the bottom of the ninth inning. Uh, Maglio had already hit a home run earlier in the game, and then uh, – you think, you know, in those moments, what I learned that year was you, you can you can kind of plan for what you want to say, but the, the best thing is when you just have to react to the moment. But you do want to think about what might happen. I think that's one thing you have to do, what you anticipate what might happen. Well, Magno that year, he'd been driving in runs with singles. You know, he'd go right. opposite way. So I'm thinking opposite way single. It was two outs. It was two outs, bases empty. He was up fifth that inning. Uh, and once the Tigers got a man on, you know, he told the clubhouse guys, they've got to start with it, put the plastic up or keep the plastic down, uh, put the plastic up, I'm going to whip this thing. And, you know, <laughs> it, 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 two out bases empty, he's telling you that. So, but literally, I'm picturing a single to right field, and then you're thinking maybe there'll be a play, the play, but I mean, you just try to anticipate what might happen. And you probably hear it in my voice. The last thing you thought was going to be a bomb to left field, and that thing, Thank goodness, was a no doubter, and and that was the beauty of it because you can just you can hear the surprise in my voice, maybe, and the just the genuine uh, emotion because it was unexpected and it was a beautiful sight. <laughs> right, right. I mean, the the thing that stands out about that call is just the the sort of a uh, a surprise. The Tigers are going to the World Series because, of course, that was the first time that had happened since 1984. Yeah, and and. You know, I thought about when they first reached the playoffs a couple of weeks before, I'd kind of written down what I wanted to say. And then when I heard it back, I thought, well, it sounded like I just read a line, which I did <laughs> when they clinched in Kansas City. So I knew that I wanted to say, you know, I, I had an idea of what I wanted to say. And it just that, that call seemed to flow uh, pretty nicely, thanks to Megalith. All right. Another uh, emotional moment for Tigers fans, for for very different reasons, is obviously the, uh, the last game played at Tiger Stadium in 1999. Uh, you had the honor of uh, being the, asked by Arnie Harwell, you know, the, the legendary broadcaster, to sit in and do play-by-play for an inning. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that experience and maybe some of your thoughts on Ernie Harwell? Because you had an impossible, you know, one of the very tough jobs of replacing a legend. The uh, the amazing thing about that day was, I mean, 
first of all, I've been told a couple of weeks before I might get a chance to call a few innings. And this Jim Price was the middle innings guy back then. And I thought I was going to do three innings, and I said, you know what? He's going to stay through the sixth inning and then leave for the post-game ceremony. So would you like to join? Because we were doing pre and post at that time. Would you like to join Ernie for the last three innings? I said, sure. What do you want me to do? I'll just stay out of your way, I guess. And so they said, no, you just go in there and just be in the booth with them for the last three innings. I thought, well, I can do that. I'll have a front row seat for one of the great moments ever. And so during Jim's innings, I was, you know, that was a tiny booth. I'm maybe eight feet by six feet. So I'm standing behind Ernie and Jim next to Howard Stitzel, the classic engineer for so many years, and just listening to what they had to say. I wanted to make sure I didn't repeat stuff. So during Jim's innings, as he would often do, Ernie, you know, took the headsets off, stood up, and looked at me and said, so what's the plan here? I think he's great. Nobody told Ernie Harwell what the heck I'm doing in the booth <laughs> and why I'm here. I said, I guess I can join you at the top of the seventh, stay out of your way till the end of the game. He said, would you like to do an inning? I said, no, it's your last three innings. He said, no, would you like to do And I wasn't going to say no twice. So because yeah. I was ready. I, I was ready. I had, <laughs> I had all kinds of stuff because originally I thought I was going to do a few innings. So I said, yeah. He said, here's what we'll do. I'll come back to the top of the seventh. And then I'll introduce you, and you do the bottom of the seventh and the top of the eighth inning. Last game at Tiger Stadium, very emotional day, very emotional for Tim. And it, to me, to this day, it just amazes me what a selfless, generous act that was. He knew that this was something I wanted to do. He knew that this was important to me. Uh, and he gave me an inning. In that bottom of the seventh inning, I'd take over. And, you know, I, if you remember his style, he generally didn't talk a whole lot when his partner was on, whether it was Paul Carey or Chip Price. But with me, he was like, folks, this is the major league debut of Dan Dickinson. Dan, when was your first ball game here at America? <laughs> Doing anything he could to, or here at Tiger Stadium, whatever he could do to make me sound good and make it conversational and put me at ease. And so I did those half innings. Watched him call the six grand slam in the bottom of the eighth, and he was just an unbelievable moment with all the slash balls going off the bottom of the eighth at the top of the night. Heard his farewell sitting right next to him. But I mean, truly, that warning ending, I'd never done anything other than practice tapes. Practice tapes, which mm-hmm. he had very kindly reviewed for me uh, when I made them at Tiger Stadium. I'd never been minor leagues or called an inning on the air. And I don't think there's any question that one inning helped me get into the booth when they decided to add a third person uh, when Comerica Park opened the next spring. I don't think there's any question about that. I think he probably helped, but I think that one inning showed that I could do it and also helped to this day. Uh, it amazed me that he did that, but that's kind of classic Ernie Harwell. Uh, he would always listen to, I remember we shared a ride to Cleveland. He had a couple of tapes that young broadcasters had sent him that he'd listened and he mm-hmm. Send him a letter back, a little feedback. I mean, that's who he was. Yeah, obviously, we should have saved that question for last because I'm getting a little weepy here. So, (laughs) (laughs) uh, wow, that's that's a great story. Um, Miss Miss Ernie Harwell quite a bit, but uh, 
you know, doing the the uh, play-by-play uh, on the radio, Dan, is obviously very, very different from doing the play-by-play on the television. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what are some of the challenges that you face doing radio versus TV? And then also, what are some of the maybe the benefits of, of being able to do it on the radio? I think it, the advantages, to me, outweigh the, uh, the disadvantages or, or, or any minuses there might be. Because, I mean, and I talked with Mario and Pemp about this, but, you know, a fair amount, and, and he loves what he does, but on radio, you have pretty free reign, and I like trying to paint a picture, and in TV, you're not really supposed to. You can, but I've done enough TV to know that, you know, you, you don't, the pictures are telling that story. You don't really have to do that, uh, and I understand that, but that's why I love radio. Uh, I love being able to try to paint the picture as best I can, try to describe things that that sometimes a challenge giving some batting stances and, you know, pitchers' motions that are a little funky that you're trying to describe. It's a, it's a challenge, and it's fun to me. Uh, and I also like the idea that you know, I can talk about whatever I want to talk about whenever I want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hopefully remembering that, I'm, you know, I'm not keeping pace with the game and describing what's going on, but that is fun. I mean, I like looking things up. There's so much good writing and uh, stuff being written about baseball and, and things, analysis. I mean, it's, it's fun to read and, and, you know, just trying to bring things to light that, that people are talking about or analyzing or trying new ways of measuring talent. Uh, that's fun to me. And the thought that I can just, you know, if I've stumbled across something interesting just at the right moment, maybe it never fits into that day's broadcast, but at the right moment, you know, I can just bring it into the broadcast without having to get on talk back and say, hey, do you have that graphic that we talked about for, you know, this and uh, maybe it doesn't really fit into a television broadcast. And, and that, to me, is fun. I mean, it's just you have a lot of freedom, uh, and I think you have a lot of, uh, well, I don't know, I just think there's such a great tradition with base, baseball and radio, and I figure as long as people have cars and are outside in the summer, uh, there's going to be an audience out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's become, you don't hear the background noise. Uh, people say, hey, you help me, you know, get two hours home from my drive from Ohio or uh, we're driving up north, you killed a couple of hours for us, or you put me to sleep the other night. That's great. <laughs> Those are all good things. <laughs> all right. Uh, and this, that's kind of a good segue that you, when you say you have the freedom to pretty much talk whatever, talk about whatever you want to talk about, the, the gym and yourself. Uh, a lot of people comment specifically on the uh, social networks that the, the, the broadcast team on the radio, yourself and Jim, uh, seems to have more freedom to be critical of the team and, and player performances than uh, Mario Pembo and Rod Allen do on television. Uh, do you find it to be the case or is that just more of a, a misperception on the case of the fans? You know, I don't, I don't hear their broadcasts enough. I, I defer... I think if, if I'm going to be critical, it's only going to be in pointing out mm-hmm. what a player is doing or not doing right now in terms of, you know, like we talked to Joe Nathan, uh, about Joe Nathan's job at Chamberlain. I'm not being critical, but the, the facts are, you know, in the second half, they both allowed a lot of base runners. It's just something that you point out saying that, you know, this probably has to get a lot better as we, you know, Tigers head into the postseason. Uh, I leave it to Jim, and, and I think, you know, Jim is, I think he's honest. I think he... Because he has the authority, if you will, or, you know, he's the ex-player. He knows he's going to know the game at a higher level than I will because he played it at that level. And I think, you know, if he wants to be critical or, you know, in terms of, hey, he's got to make that play or that's a terrible pitch, that situation, that to me is his uh, area of expertise. Mm-hmm. 
versus me just more of the statistical side. Here's what's been going on. He's either not hitting or, you know, he's, he, he's not delivering it as a reliever the way he should versus, you know, the, more of the analysis of uh, execution of an, a pitch or an at-bat or an inning. And I, I think uh, I think he does a very good job of it. I don't think mm-hmm. he oversteps it. I think he – you're very aware, and you, and you have to be, that the players aren't listening, but family members are listening. Uh, it's not in the clubhouse sometimes. We'll have the TV picture on, but the radio sound sometimes. Um, so you're aware of that, and you're aware that these are human beings, and you're aware that, you know, if word gets back to them, usually it's like the old telephone game, and it's uh, gone through a few different mm-hmm. versions by it gets to it. Hey, they were ripped dry. Yeah. <laughs> so you always make sure, you know, you're in the clubhouse if they do ever have anything, and it doesn't really happen very often. But you want to also be able to explain what you said. I should always be able to say, I think the players understand. Mm-hmm. I'm not being critical of you. But I, if I point out, you know, the slump you're in right now, that's not being critical. That's just something factual. And I think it's it's silly to pretend somebody's hitting well when they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, and I think it's important to point out guys going good, guys not going good. And then the reasons why. Jim can get into that and I can get into that because yeah. you maybe talk to somebody about either the player himself or talk to a coach about some of the things going on. There's always a perspective, I think, that, that hopefully goes with. Right. And when you're discussing player performances, you know, one of the things that I've especially noticed on the, especially on the social sites, that, that you have a lot of uh, Dan Dickerson fans who enjoy your broadcast precisely because you're obviously well-versed in the sabermetrics, the advanced metrics, and you will frequently make use of those statistics, you know, as you're talking during the game, uh, you know, between pitch commentary, you'll be talking about win probability added, you'll be talking about uh, war and uh, defensive run saves, this kind of thing. So I was just curious, Dan, what was your kind of introduction to advanced metrics? How did you discover them? And do you find that kind of a challenge to, to talk about that in a game in a way that would make sense to the to the casual fan? Yeah, you're absolutely, absolutely on the second part. Uh, it is a challenge. I'll go back to uh, – I, I probably got hooked on it. The Bill Chang's baseball abstracts in the 80s were fascinating to me. This guy opened my eyes in a big way to just a different way. He's always going to look at a game in a unique way, and he's obviously uh, not shy about – his opinions either, but there's no question that those were very influential books. In terms, of, I couldn't believe how he looked at the game. Like, wow, this guy—he's got some good ideas here. Uh, so that's just—I think that opened my eyes always to the, the research that goes on and the good writing that goes on. With you know, the Hardball Times, I thought was a website that was kind of ahead of its time, and the Hardball Times Annual is still a terrific publication. And now you look at some of the—I mean, just you name it. I mean, there's great writing out there right now. Uh, and then to work into it, I think the key, you know, the key is always trying to figure out, you know, of the many, many numbers you could look at, what what's really useful. I look at a lot of different ones, but for the fan, I mean, you got to realize there are fans out there who still don't really know maybe slugging percentage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you do, even when you talk about slugging percentage, you have to remind if a guy is slugging 570, you have to remind people what, what's good these days, what's what's league average, what's above average, and what's the elite these days. So you, you're aware of that. So when you start talking about on-base plus slugging, uh, which I don't really use a ton, although I look at it every day. Uh, but So what are the useful ones? And I, I do think wins above replacement war is, is very useful. And I, and I try to explain it briefly. It's just you don't have to know how it's put together. 
So just understand that it is an attempt to quantify everything that a player does based on the position he plays. Like at the time Ian Kinsler was traded for Prince Fielder, she reminded that a guy who hits pretty decently and plays a very good second base is a lot more valuable than a guy at first base who can hit with power but isn't very good defensively. And it's not even close. And that's the value of a war. It doesn't have to be an argument ender, but it certainly has a lot of value. Uh, so, but you also are very aware you don't want to over put too many numbers on things. And that's why sometimes I'll talk about a statistic, but not necessarily, you know, say that he's got a 979 ox. Mm -hmm. But I can say that he's a well above average hitter. He hits for power. He hits for average. He draws a lot of walks uh, because you've looked at certain things. So I think there's a way of presenting it. I, I, you know, based on the feedback, I think it seems to be working. You know, I've, funny you mention it because I'm thinking tonight about I want to get in, you know, when you introduce new terms, you're very aware of if it sounds very different, people are going to be like, what? Mm -hmm. And you don't want them to tune out. But I want to talk about high leverage situation because um, I think, you know, managers are using it, front offices are using it in the valuation of players. But Ian Kinsler stands out. His bat really has been kind of quiet for the whole well, since the beginning of July, and yet he's got 89 RBIs. So you immediately think, okay, why? He must be doing something right. And you look, he's been outstanding in high-leverage situations. So I've been mulling over <laughs> for the last several days. I think I can, you know, try to explain that on the air without getting real specific, but just tell us, do you get to hit when it matters most? I think people understand that. And it doesn't have to be just close and late situations, but it can be, you know, if you explain high leverage is just trying to gauge, sometimes a hit in the first inning can be the most important hit of the day or have the most impact on your chances of winning. I think people understand that. So I'm thinking of breaking that out over the weekend. <laughs> and I think, you know, if it helps people's understanding, I mean, I, I think, I mean, that's what I try to keep in mind. Is it helping them understand, you know, the value of a player? Because people, I think, I was. I was getting caught in the trap of it. Ian Kinsler's best been quiet for a while. Then you realize, you know what? He has come up with big hits. And instead of just saying, ooh, he's a good clutch hitter, at least you've got something to back it up. Yeah, and just to follow up on that, uh, do, you, do you foresee a time, you know, sometime, and hopefully they're not too distant future, when advanced metrics, saber metrics, can become a regular part of baseball broadcasts, uh, not only in radio and television, because we asked the same uh, question to Mario Mpemba. He pretty much said the same thing. It's a very difficult balance when you factor in the hardcore fan to the casual fan. Right. Yeah, and TV, I mean, I, I haven't thought about it a whole lot with TV, but it seems like you could, you know, as it becomes maybe more interactive, I mean, you mm -hmm. could watching it, you could, well, certainly online, if you watch it now, you can click on just about anything on a game cast. Uh, but it seems like TV, you could just run a, a quick little box. Right. Uh, as, as some of these numbers get a little more understood, you know, whether it's, you know, I, we have a stats guru with, with the Tigers who's talking about RE24. I'm like, whoa, baby. Or <laughs> 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 way to on base average plus. And I, I, and I, that's something I haven't looked at, but, and he said the funny thing is, it basically becomes the same thing as Ops Plus, even though Ops Plus doesn't make sense mathematically it ends up being a pretty good way of measuring someone's overall value offensively. So, uh, you know, there are things out there. I, I, it, I think it would take a long time. You would have to – I think on baseball slugging uh, has become part of the lexicon. It's funny. I don't really use it a lot on the air. I'll more break it down to each of the individual components. 
of batting average on base and slugging and just say, hey, not only hits for average, but he draws walks and hits for power versus an actual ops number. Uh, but that that has slowly made its way, but it's mm-hmm. been, what, I'd say six, seven years before, you know, it's kind of getting mainstream. I think it is mainstream now, but you really have to probably have that two or three or four, you know, newer stats that, that everybody agrees is a, a good one. And it seems like, I don't know, weighted on base average seems to be the one that everybody at least is looking at saying that's a really good uh, measure, maybe one of the better measurements of a player's offensive value. I just think it would take time, but I like introducing it. It's, it's nice when I get good feedback about it, and I have, and I just think, you know, you don't have to overdo it, but if you just keep, and I, I've talked about war on a pretty regular basis, and I remind people what it is every time, and I, I do think slowly but surely, I mean, you can, you can introduce things like that. I think war has become a very useful tool, and I think it's something that people at least are, are getting the idea behind. Well, there you go. Dan Dickerson leading the revolution of bringing <laughs> sabermetrics into the regular broadcasts. Dan, we've talked a little bit about your background and, and life in the booth. Let's shift gears just a little bit and talk about Tigers baseball. Uh, generally speaking, as the Tigers make their march towards the postseason, uh, what do you see as kind of being their keys to success in October and maybe what will be their biggest challenge? I think uh, the, I always start with starting rotations, first and foremost. I do think the last two starts of Justin Verlander certainly give you the hope that this rotation could be very strong, one through four. I, I do believe David Price has, has run into some bad luck. I do think the stuff is there. I don't think the innings are an issue. I think he's, uh, the stuff still looks good to me, and I think he's, he's primed for a strong postseason. Max is fine. Uh, so I, I start there, and I think, again, there's been inconsistencies with Justin, but I, I think Justin's ready for perhaps, based on the last two starts, a really big postseason again. And that gives them maybe more depth than anybody else in the top three. And I include Rick Porcello, but he'll probably be the number four starter you would think in the postseason. Uh, but then I always go to, can you lock down a game in the eighth and ninth? Because we've just seen that in really each of the last three years, but especially I think in 2011 when Alexia Gondo was such a weapon out of the bullpen, he was not a lockdown last inning guy, but he was just a guy who made a huge impact. Then to come in 2012, but last year, you know, the Koji Uehara was just it was game over when he came out. So I really do believe you've got to lock down the eighth of ninth. Uh, and that obviously has been a trouble area. We've talked about it. Chamberlain and Nathan have a lot, a lot of base runners in the second half. Chamberlain looks at the stuff was very sharp last three outings. Nathan had his best outing maybe of the year last night. Uh, and, you know, maybe some sides. Soria, I think, and Sanchez are going to be interesting, potential big impact arms out of the bullpen in the postseason. I do think it's a key, though. And if the Tigers, you know, figure out the exact mix and when to use each, uh, it, it could be an area of strength, especially with the way Soria's pitching and with the addition of a knee ball Sanchez. I think the offense is plenty good, and I think it matches up well right now uh, against the teams they might play in the postseason. And the fact that Miguel Cabrera is healthy compared to last year when he was playing maybe on one leg going into the postseason is maybe the best sign of all for the offense. All right, and to uh, kind of follow up on that, uh, the offseason hopefully won't be here for a while, but it's it's rapidly approaching. And I think we're looking at a, what could be a vastly different-looking Tigers team next year in 2015. Uh, there may be some big holes that need to be addressed to shore up the team, to essentially keep the World Series window open. Uh, 
you know, we don't know if Max Scherz is returning. We don't know if Torrey Hunter's returning. Uh, the outfield looks like a big question mark uh, next year because of the loss of Austin Jackson. Uh, so what avenues, uh, what areas do you think the team needs to shore up this coming offseason to be, be either trade or free agency to uh, keep this team where it's at for next year? Uh, good question, because we talk a lot about Victor Martinez and Torrey Hunter. It just mm-hmm. seems like Torrey might be, I have no idea, might be open to the idea of a one-year extension. Uh, he, I would love to have him back. I think his defense has gotten better in the second half. I know the numbers say he hasn't been very good this year in right field, but I do think he's been better in the second half. He's made plays, and he doesn't really make a lot of plays in the first half, running to the gap, running to the line. Uh, I think it stood out the second half for Torrey. I'd love to have him back. Mm-hmm. Victor Martinez maybe is the big question mark because realistically, J.D. Martinez, I think, will cool off. Not the power department necessarily, but I think the batting average will, will fall next year. He's still going to be a solid run producer, I think. But if you take Victor Martinez out of the mix, that, that definitely changes the look of the lineup. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the huge question. How, how many years do you give a 36-year-old who's having his best season ever? Uh, or any 36-year-old for that matter. I mean, it has to be that he's coming off his best season ever. That's that's a tricky one, but if it happens to be he's coming off the best season ever, he'll be one of the most attractive free agent on the market uh, if the Tigers let him get there. So I think that's that's question number one, and Max will probably be gone, but you've got David Price, Rick Porcello, Justin Verlander. Uh, it's not a bad start to a rotation. Or Nibal Sanchez, so that's four. Uh, then maybe tying, I would think, Price to a long-term extension would be a priority. You know, they've got guys who are going to make a lot of money on this team, and I don't think they're just going to let Cabrera and Verlander uh, mm-hmm. get surrounded by lesser talent for the, the length of their contracts. And they go through 2019 uh, for Justin in, what, 2021 for Miguel or 2020 for Miguel. So uh, they've probably got a plan. You know, they, they have their meetings right about now, and I, I guarantee you they're, they're laying out a roadmap. And maybe they've got a, a player identified uh, that they can – trade for. Uh, I don't think a bat is a huge priority again unless lose Victor. I would think I would think Victor's a huge priority. Uh and maybe you can't keep both Victor and Tory Hunter. Maybe you would need Tory's, you know, thirteen and a half million uh, to to help sign Victor. I don't know. But I do think the fact you got J D Martinez for nothing yeah. certainly helps. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it certainly helps. I mean that's that's huge. Uh, and and I think probably catching to the degree that uh, the concern maybe over Alex and, you know, the, the repeated uh, blows uh, mm-hmm. have taken on him. And, and do you, are you confident that McCann can step right in or a guy who's only caught a couple of games, probably you can't plan on him being your regular next year. But that might also just be an area of discussion in terms of, okay, what's our long-term plan? Because that's the one thing you know about Dave Dombrowski. When, mm-hmm. he's, when, he's, when he walks around the ballpark, he's always got in his coat pocket a list of what this team is going to look like in 2015, 16, 17, the next three years. So that in his mind, it's an exercise that he's just constantly repeating all the time and updating all the time. He wants to have an idea of what this team could potentially look like down the road based on the talent in the farm system and or potential free agents they might sign. Uh, so you know they're thinking about it. And again, I go back to you. They've spent all this money on Cabrera and Berlin. They're not just going to let them uh, stay on this team with no talent surrounding them. They'll figure out a way to fill this roster. Uh, but to me right now, maybe maybe a little bullpen help. But you got Soria and Nathan next year. Uh, I think the priority really is figuring out what to do with Hunter and Martinez and then, you know, maybe the catching situation as well. All right, awesome. Uh, and uh, one thing I want to get out there real quick, because uh, your post-game tweets where you kind of wrap up the game really are a must-read for Tigers fans. So 
If uh, fans want to follow along with you on the social media networks, how can they do so? Uh, Dan underscore Dickerson on Twitter, and I appreciate that because you, you never know. Uh, I mean, I enjoy doing it. You hopefully just give a little bit of, you know, insight beyond just how the game went, but you know, maybe a couple of insights about like Joe Nathan last night. He right. Threw some wicked sliders, and I said that, and uh, I mean, hopefully that gives fans just a little more than they would get from just looking at the box. Right. No, it's it's absolutely must read. I got to tell you, when I when I am not able to catch a game on radio or television, I always go back to your timeline just to find out what happens. So uh, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a great service. So, Dan, thank you very much for joining us on the show today. I, I hope that you enjoyed it and that you will uh, uh, be willing to come back on the show. I would love to have you back, especially during the during the off season to kind of talk Tigers baseball with you. I, I always love talking Tigers baseball. So anytime, guys. All right. Thank you so much, Dan. All right, you're welcome. All right, and have a good weekend, and we'll talk to you soon. Well, that was great. I had to say that was a lot of fun talking to Dan. And he had uh, uh, I like how he brings the uh, it's the the, the saber metrics into the mix, the advanced metrics, and that's something you don't see a lot of uh, from a lot any broadcasters. To be honest with you. No, it's it's true. You'll hear some uh, non-standard baseball opinions now and again, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from different broadcasters. Maybe just somebody doesn't like the bunt or something yeah, that's yeah. kind of off the beaten path, but not to the degree that, that Dan brings to the game. And it's kind of funny as as I was looking over the show notes and the questions we were going to ask him. And that mm-hmm. particular question, I kind of had a little bet going in my own mind as to what his introduction to the to sabermetrics would have been. I, I guessed Bill James. Yeah. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I thought that's interesting that he's obviously been uh, involved in this since. You know, since the 80s so yeah exactly and so uh, and, w- and we really are as uh, tigers fans spoiled uh oh, for for most of our i guess you could say lifetimes over the broadcast teams we've gotten to listen to over the years even going back to obviously my first uh, real uh, you know when i got exposed to tigers baseball it was ernie harwell and paul carey on the radio and uh, george kell on television who was later joined by al Kaline. And over the years, I have to say, we really have been, we've been, <laughs> I hate to use the term spoiled shitless, but we have when it comes to having very enjoyable, informative, and I would say for the most part, guy, uh, broadcasters who tend to go, you know, you can tell that they, that they lean the Tigers way, but they, they aren't blatant homers. And I think most fans appreciate that. Yeah, I'll just, I'll. Affirm what you just said. We're yeah. spoiled crazy. <laughs> just <laughs> ridiculous over the last 20, 30, 40 years. Exactly. It's just been ridiculous on, on television and, and radio for that matter. I mean, mm-hmm. I grew up in the television days of George Cal and Al Kaline. Right. You know, that that was as awesome as it gets, I think. But oh, yeah. yeah, we're we're very we're very blessed here in Tiger Town. To say the very least. All right. Uh, speaking of, I guess to say blessed, uh, uh, it's been a, actually a pretty good and interesting week in that we're blessed with a lot to talk about. So let's get to it. Uh, otherwise, this podcast is going to run like three hours long. So, uh, you know, between the Royal Series and the antics that took place there, uh, obviously the White Sox series and binocular gate, and obviously uh, we're now upon the last weekend of the season. The Tigers' magic number, as we record this podcast on Friday afternoon, is down to two with three games left to play. The Tigers could clinch as of tonight. Uh uh, I guess let's just, you know, and plus there's playoff stuff to talk about because the Tigers have locked down at the very least, at the very worst, a wild card slot. So, so what you're saying is we're getting to the rest of the podcast as a lightning round. Pretty much at this point. Okay. So, it's, all right. it's all hot takes from here on out, yeah. folks. <laughs> all right. Well, let's start with the, the, the Tigers took care of business in Kansas City. Uh, they came out like gangbusters, doing what they needed to do, immediately winning the series by taking the first two games. 
uh, James Shields, big game James, as they say, he did salvage the finale, but the Tigers did what they needed to do. They, they left for home a game and a half up with seven to play, uh, essentially being able to take their own destiny into their own hands. Uh, there were parts of the fan base of Clyde that did complain that they didn't sweep and, uh, you know, they, they, it shouldn't be this tight still. But when you beat your main competition for the division by taking two or three on the road, that's how you win division crowns. It really is. Absolutely, that is. And, yeah, a sweep would have been nice, but mm-hmm. that's maybe overreaching a little bit. Yeah. You know, it's not to be expected. It's, it's a nice bonus if you can get it, you mm-hmm. know. But, t- like you said, taking two out of three is, is more than adequate, I think. Uh, you know, given that they had to face the White Sox and now the Twins after that. Right. Uh, it's that you couldn't have asked for, you know, I think a more realistically better outcome. Yeah, it's – it's uh, uh, it was just weird how it all went down because there was uh, – well, Saturday, uh, the Saturday's game, the, the Tigers won the second game of the series. It was bizarre for many ways. Uh, specifically, it was the Salvador Perez controversy. Uh, the alt, uh, the Altmaiers got ultimately got the call right. What happened was uh, a hot line drive to Kinsler. Ian Kinsler makes the makes the catch, then tries to double the runner off second and throws it away. Perez never came back to touch third base. He stopped a couple feet short, turned around when he saw the ball to, uh, head off in the left field, and, and and scored. What was really weird was one obviously the Tigers did the appeal correctly. It was denied. They said, "Oh, he, he of course he touched the bag." Then all hell broke loose when it came to the, uh, was it reviewable or not? And the fact that it what ultimately wasn't reviewable just seems, one, that seems ridiculous to me. Uh, and then there was the issue of Kansas City's staff playing the, posting the replay on the scoreboard because they thought the player's reviewable, which could have played into the umpires changing their mind about the call. Obviously, the umpires did what they were supposed to do, and they gathered, you no, know, they huddled together. Uh, had a little, you know, this took a long time to figure out, too. Huddled together, talked it over, called them out, ending the inning for game, uh, inning any double play, essentially bailing the Tigers out. But the question is, uh, do you think the umpires were influenced by, by a replay they weren't supposed to see? Because you know they had to at least know what was going on because they had to have heard the moan from the crowd when they saw what happened, and when the crowd saw what happened, that oh yeah, he didn't touch the base, he's out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, that's it's really hard to argue otherwise. Yeah. You know, I know they have to say that they didn't see, yeah, the and replay, they did. That's exactly what they said. Which they have to, because mm-hmm. it's not a reviewable play. Which I like. I think you're right. It's, it's silly that it's not. I know the, the verbiage says that uh, uh, it's, a play that is not reviewable includes uh, whether or not the runner left too early on the tag up. Mm-hmm. And I, I would have argued and said that's not what the situation was. It's not that he left too early. It's that he never tagged up at all. Right. Um, and some would say, well, yeah, that's the ultimate case of leaving too early. Yeah. <laughs> but so I, I hope they change that rule because that should be reviewable. But yeah, I mean, to your point, once the umpires went to huddle, you know, with the headsets. Um, you know, the, then they uh, were able to play the, the the replay on the scoreboard. You know, assuming that that uh, that the play was going to New York for review. Exactly. And yeah, I just I, I have a hard time believing that they didn't see it on the jumbotron. That they didn't hear the crowd reaction. That they didn't somehow play into it because obviously once they got the headsets off and the, officially they said they called New York to find out if the play was reviewable and they got the word back, no, it's not. We mm-hmm. can't help you. Um, but obviously once they put the headsets off, they they rehuddled. Yeah. And like you pointed out, on the original appeal, everybody said, no, he's safe. Mm-hmm. You know, so you're telling me that somebody actually saw something, yeah. at, you know, at that point in time and didn't 
correct it? I, I don't think so. I think they got back together and said, actually, yeah, we know this. What this is what happened. We got to change the call. Yeah, I guess the the I guess the issue you can make with this is the umpires didn't know it wasn't reviewable. And I think that's an issue that you have umpires that still aren't clear on replay review, and that and that's something in Major League Baseball's definitely got to fix. Well, but I mean, to the guy's mm-hmm. credit, I can't remember the guy's name, the umpire that, that yeah. made that call. To his credit, he mm-hmm. said, I was pretty sure it wasn't reviewable, but I had to make a thousand percent sure. I see. And, and I give him total credit for, you mm-hmm. know, doing his job to its nth degree to make sure that he didn't yeah. got that call right. And in the end, yeah, I mean, some people from Kansas City complained and said, you know, that should be protested. You know, they did it wrong. Technically, by the book, they did it wrong. Mm-hmm. But in the end, don't you want the call to be right? That's And that's the thing. Exactly. You want, you know, this is why replay was put into place, because there was too many calls that were missed that were easily correctable by replay. And this was one of them. And, but, and can you imagine yeah. the implications if they got that call wrong? Exactly. Yep. And that ended up being the difference between mm-hmm. the Tigers taking the division or not. I mean, mm-hmm. we'd be talking about this for decades to come about how even though MLB implemented replay, they still got it wrong. Yep. Yeah, it'd be up there with... Uh, uh, game 163 and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I think things MLB, like that. You know, they, they they avoided a huge scandal by getting that right. Yeah, yeah. Thank goodness that we and and I think we also have to say at the very least, I think most Kansas City fans agreed with the call, and they actually tend to say that that wasn't the reason we lost. The reason we lost was Ned Yost <laughs> again. Yay! Uh, <laughs> because the Royals manager made some very questionable at best strategy calls, which I think played a big part in the two losses to the Tigers. Uh, or specifically taking the bats out of the hands of his hottest hitters by asking them to sacrifice bunt in early in the game. We're talking, you know, uh, first third inning when this, even though the first one by Aoki, even he, he said, I did that on my own, but also the fact that Aoki said, we play for one run. That's just how things are done here. So, again, you could blame Yost for kind of laying the groundwork for Aoki, feeling like I, I, I should bunt so early in the game. Then there's the fact that he had his number three hitter was hitting 218 on the year, Josh Willingham, and he was hitting so bad that he felt the need to pinch hit for his number three hitter in the ninth inning with the game-winning runs on base. And then when he had the option of using Billy Butler, who – has had a great – he's not Verlander. He doesn't hit him like, hit Joe Nathan like Verlander, but he hits Joe Nathan pretty darn well if you look at the numbers. He elected to use instead the 2,000-year-old man, 167 hitting Raul Ibanez, who's had probably the worst year by any major league batter this season. He used him to pitch hit instead. He bounced weakly to first base, ending the game, and in a lot of ways ending the Royals' chances of winning the division. God, if I'm yeah. a Royals fan, I'm livid at Ned Yost, even if they make the playoffs. Yeah, because that's uh, hearing Ned Yost's explanation afterwards just sounded, mm-hmm. you know, so much like the template boilerplate garbage manager position. Because mm-hmm. he said, even though uh, Ivan is at that point was like one for twelve in either, I think it was against uh, Nathan particularly, he was mm-hmm. one for twelve. And uh, but uh, Yost's argument was, yeah, but that one hit was a home run. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's what we're gonna we're gonna go with yeah, that. He you know, might it, run into one. That's it, the, yeah. it, shades of Jim Leland yeah. there, you know, and you kind of go, wow, these guys really all do play from the same playbook. Mm-hmm. You know, it just that uh, maybe here in this situation, it was more under the spotlight because, like you said, that that could have cost them. Uh, ultimately, that could cost them a division. Yeah, it's uh, it's just 
it was just it was fascinating to watch uh, if you're if you're on the social network specifically Twitter where all the pundits are during games and watching the real time reactions to some of Ned Yeo's calls it was absolutely hysterical you know basically to the point where most people thought the guy should be fired on general principle. Well, I mean, it's starting to make sense why you got fired from the Milwaukee Brewers in the exactly. middle of that race, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's just these instances pile up and pile up. And I know last week we discussed the fact that he, uh, uh, he wouldn't use uh, Calvin Herrera. Yeah. You know, in, in, the, in the sixth inning because quote unquote his is the seventh, seventh inning, yeah. and it's a shame that we didn't get that far. <laughs> you know, even though the high leverage situation is happening in the sixth, and he used a lesser pitcher, and ended up losing the game. You know, as a result, but. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to pile on that Yost when you kind of look at the the landscape and say, yeah, but all these managers seem to do it the same way, and there are very very few exceptions. Yeah, because uh, we had, uh, uh, to be honest, we have made many of the same complaints about Brad Osmus. Uh, I would just say that, uh, as Rob noted on the site when he wrote a post about this, that Osmus tended to not get into the way of his players as much as Yost. And, and uh, it was just ridiculous when you, when a guy who was 13 for 16 is bunting, or you have a guy who has like eight hits in two games is bunting. Uh, you know, you have to think even fans who aren't uh, remotely advanced metric inclined have to think, what in the hell are you doing? You know, like, oh, I, I feel for the Royals fans really. It looks like they're going to make the playoffs though, because uh, the, uh, the Mariners, speaking of collapse, looks like the Mariners have looked like they were going to overtake one of the two, either the uh, A's or the Royals, and the Mariners collapsed as well. So uh, uh, what looked like might be might have been chaos now looks like pretty much, for the most part, it's locked in now. Yeah, and, and I don't know if you call that a collapse or just I'm not sure what, but you know, even given that, I, I guess – I give Lloyd McClendon props, yeah. you know, for what he what he did accomplish. When you consider that the Mariners have finished like fourth place, like for the last four or five years in yeah. a row, and that they were actually in the playoff conversation, and maybe you know, I, I don't know. It's I'm sure they're going to be uh, making moves in the off season to get better, or whatever. But uh, that, that would have been fun. I mean, just in terms mm -hmm. of, of thinking of the ex Tigers that are going to be in the playoffs this year, Doug yeah. Fister is going to be in it. Mm -hmm. Delmon Young, Quinton Berry is going to be in it. It would have been fun to say Austin Jackson, yeah. you know, would have been part of that too. But we'll see. Yeah, yeah. To McClendon's credit, he, he, I think no one expected the team to contend this late in the season. But I believe they lost five straight games over this past week, essentially ending their chances and bailing out the A's, who have been less than impressive themselves, you know. I can't believe that the A's are even still part of this conversation. And they, they talk, Yeah, talk about collapsing. They've been awful in September. It's amazing it, how that can fall apart. It just speaks to how well they were doing in the first half. Yeah. That they're still in the running, mm -hmm. even with this just massive slide that they've gone through. And it, that's just bizarre. Yeah, you know, we could have a whole discussion on, well, wins in April mean just as much as wins now. But, you know, as, as in the Tigers' case, they, they've essentially – the Tigers are winning this division because of their performance in the first six weeks of the season and their performance in the last four weeks of the season, when you think about it. Absolutely, because there was a lot of question there in the middle, you yeah. know, May, June, July. You know, yeah, they were a 500 play. team for all those months, but they're, they, right. they're playing 600 ball now, and they played over 600 ball early the season, and that was enough to, to put them over top. And they're going to end up, well, we'll talk about that, you know, a little but as we end the podcast, that really the Tigers are going to end up where we thought they were, just not how they expected to get there. All right. right. Yeah, we have to talk about the White Sox series because there was a – well, this is one of those cases where Brad Ausmus made the correct decision. It just didn't work out, and that was in regard to David Price. Uh, the Tigers ultimately 
would win the game in walk-off fashion in the bottom of the ninth. But Price had been dominant for eight innings, eight innings shutout. His pitch count was under 100 at the time. So, uh, you know, rather than roll the dice with the bullpen, he goes, yeah, I'm going to ride, ride Price out. And we'll put him in the ninth inning because, you know, he's, he's, he's an ace. Well, obviously things fell apart. The wheels came off. Price, uh, you know, he wasn't hit super hard, but balls found green. Then the White Sox scored three runs and ultimately loaded the bases. And amazingly, Joe Nathan got out of it. Uh, but this is, was, I guess the question is of Osmus in this one, do you think he stuck with him too long? Uh, you could make an argument that after two runs had scored, it was pretty obvious that, you know, the White Sox had figured things out for some some reason or he was tired or something. And I guess the other question is, do you think the struggles of the bullpen played a part with sticking through Price despite the, 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 the Sox rallying the way they did? Uh, unfortunately, no, I don't think that had anything to do with it mm-hmm. uh, in terms of uh, Osmus looking at the bullpen struggles mm-hmm. because I think he's said over and over again he, that, you know, he, he's sticking with Joe Nathan no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um I think it had a lot more to do with just as he actually said in the, in the press, uh, post game presser, I should say, you know, that, that it, the price was going strong. So there was really no reason to pull him at that point. Yeah. I think he made the right decision. It didn't turn out great, but yeah. when you talk about, you know, hey, they scored two runs. Why didn't price get pulled then? And I, I want to say memory is fading, but I want to say there was actually a runner on third at that point. Mm-hmm. And I was saying this is absolutely the wrong time to bring Joe Nathan into the game. You know, yeah, when you've well, got the time as, going as on. we saw, he ended up walking a leadoff man. And, uh, right. and it got very, very scary, to say the least. And, you know, thank goodness the offense pulled through. But, yeah, I, I agree with you. This is just one of those cases where the right call just didn't work out. And, uh, you know, to his credit, you would think, I would have bet Jim Leland goes with his bullpen in the ninth inning because that's just what he would do. <laughs> he thinks so. I think so in that game. I think so, and we would be complaining in the opposite direction. If he, you know, it's it's so hard to say with Leland because yeah. we complained no matter what. We we yeah. complained that he left the starters in too long, and then we complained that he pulled them up yeah, too early. So, Captain Hook, and you know, yes, you're, you're right. but I guess that does also go to the show side that managers can't win for losing when it comes to their strategy calls. You know, other than Ned Yost, he's another story altogether. But even some of Osmus's uh, good decisions just. Don't turn out because players don't perform sometimes. They're not robots, no, unfortunately. Yeah, that's that's why we always kind of advocate, you know, that, that you shouldn't manage by results-oriented, mm-hmm. you know, process thought. You, you want to go with what makes the most sense, what's the percentage play, and if it doesn't happen to work out, well, that's the anomaly. Yeah. It doesn't mean that uh, it was the it was the wrong choice. And leading Price in for the ninth was absolutely the right choice, even if the result didn't bear that out. Yeah, because. When you look at your staff, who's a better pitcher, David Price or Joe Nathan? David Price. Well, you know, and yeah. for that matter, bringing Joe Nathan in mm-hmm. was probably the wrong decision, even though it worked out. Yeah, he got, yeah, that's a good point. But yeah, because I think most people would have preferred to see Joaquin Soria. Or anybody not named Joe Nathan. Yeah, <laughs> to say the least. But it, and to add, as Dan Dickerson brought up earlier, at least to Nathan's credit, I mean, he's all of a sudden he looks like he might have straightened out again. But again, it, with Nathan, he's been so up and down this year. I don't even know what to expect when he comes in the games anymore. I really don't, because yeah. he looked lights out yesterday. Right, but that that whole fact of I don't know what to expect. That I mean, that's, that's not the yeah, way you want to carry price. That's not what you want out your uh, no. out your bullpen, and that's that's not you're right. That David that's, Price that is, is not how he goes. That's not how you want to characterize your closer, especially yeah. when you know the postseason. It's like I'm not sure what we're gonna get. Yeah. But uh, and speaking of uh, well, not knowing what you're gonna get, it seems like in September we know what we're gonna get from Justin Verlander. Uh, 
he may not be throwing 100 miles an hour anymore. Uh, I think, you know, during uh, these last two games, he's topping out. Not very often. You only get up there a couple times a game, about 96, 95. But he's been damn, damn effective. I mean, I think we might be seeing the Justin Verlander figuring out how to pitch when he doesn't have that 100-mile-an-hour heat anymore. His last two September starts have both been very huge wins for the Tigers, and including out-pitching uh, the possible side young winner in Chris Sale Wednesday. Uh, over the past two games, so slide, Verlander, it's, it's, his numbers are vintage. Uh, 15.1 innings pitched, 14 hits, two earned runs. He hasn't walked anybody, and he struck out 10. Uh, that's, you know, I, I don't know if it's uh, he, he steps up in big games or if, he's, yeah. or if he's just figuring things out. But whatever it is, all of a sudden, Justin Verlander is starting to, to roll into the same shape he was at the end of last year where he was the Tigers, one of the Tigers' best pitchers in the postseason. And, you know, to, to uh, our credit at Bless You Boys, you know, Robert Gaki called this, mm-hmm. right? You know, he said early on that it was a result of the core muscle surgery and mm-hmm. that uh, as the season progressed, you know, and as Verlander slowly regained stamina, he would get better and better. And yeah. I think we're seeing the results of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a really good line mm-hmm. for the last two games, even though it doesn't strike me as necessarily vintage Verlander, just in the sense that you, you say, you know, the 10 strikeouts over 15 and one, uh, one-thirds right. innings. It's, it's still kind of a low strikeout per nine, per nine ratio uh, as compared to what we come to expect from Verlander. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he's going deeper into games, yeah. and like you said, no walks, mm-hmm. that speaks to he's he's getting his command back, uh, only giving up two earned runs over that period. You know, that, that part of it is definitely vintage Verlander. Yeah. So it, like you said, that stat line to me says it's not the same guy as mm-hmm. 2011, but it is, it's a really good pitcher. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think anybody questions that Verlander has – enough stuff, you know, even with the fastball. It's still a very effective fastball as long as he can place it. And as you said, the command's there that he can still be a very good pitcher for a very long time. And and this, he had that Yeah, go on, sorry. Go he, ahead. he had that curveball working yeah. really really well mm-hmm. uh, on Wednesday. Mhm. Yeah, right. and Wednesday, yeah. Yeah, and and of those 14, you no, know, he he has given up you know, like I said 14 hits and 15 plus innings. But I don't really remember seeing him get hit very hard, which you know, which no, means you know, no. some of that is definitely bad luck. Certainly, at Wednesday's game, I was I yeah. was tweeting at Bless You Boys for that, so I was kind of mm-hmm. keeping a closer eye on things. And yeah, the hits that he was giving up, it was all weak contact, you yeah. know, blue stuff and seeing eye singles. So that's that's a huge, very very encouraging sign. Yes, uh, especially at the uh, postseason that's quickly coming upon us. Uh, speaking of that game, uh, Verlander's win, it got bizarre to say the very least, uh, with uh, coin, with the terms being coined, binocular gates in uh, in October. Because uh, Chris Sale, I, he's either, you know, tinfoil hat insane, or the Tigers actually had someone in center field stealing signs. Because his actions on the field elevated the game, that game, to the point of really high comedy. Uh, with Sale wildly gesturing up, uh, pantomiming binoculars with his hands, uh, obviously Ian Kinsler replying in kind from second base. Uh, ultimately, Sale hit Victor Martinez, benches and bullpens emptied, everybody, you know, usual baseball type stuff. And it really seemingly fired up the Tigers, who went on to win uh, win a very close game at the time, and they pulled away to win 6-1, and, and, and take the series after a really bad loss in game one. So 
And then the, the, and the, ultimately, in the end, it led to a war of words between Brad Osmus uh, and Robin Ventura, the White Sox manager. At postgame, Brad Osmus said he called uh, Sale weak uh, and said the Tigers couldn't do anything to retaliate or anything about it because they're going to the playoffs and any kind of suspensions would affect that. While Ventura uh, essentially said, you know, my player is not weak and Osmus needs to worry about his own business, blah, blah, blah. And obviously, Chris Sale denied everything after the fact, which came, which absolutely was, again, insane. So It was laughable. Yeah, to say the least. It was just a wild, wild afternoon of baseball that um, there'll be one of those games we'll remember you know, after, after the season's long gone. Yeah, and I, I'm about to launch a blockbuster post. Uh, you know, with with some uh, blurry photo evidence mm-hmm. of the the trucks, you know, out there in center field, <laughs> you can kind of see if you look in the pictures that I've taken some mm-hmm. blurry outlines of a, a gentleman out there with an umbrella and yeah. a pair of binoculars. So I'm going to break this thing wide open. I think sale <laughs> was was right on target. No, obviously not, but it, it was. Uh, you talk about paranoia. Yeah. You know, and and the, the way he pointed out the center field and and kind of mouthed the words. You know, what are you looking at your boy out there for? Yeah. You know, then with the binocular uh, pantomime and all of that, it was just bizarre. And I thought that uh, Robin Ventura's choice of wording mm-hmm. was was very telling when he, he actually said uh, that Osmus needs to, quote unquote, investigate yeah, exactly, yeah. his own team. Mm-hmm. And what are you <laughs> talking about? You know, and Osmus was exactly right when he said, look, Victor's been hitting incredibly well all year, mm-hmm. you know. On the road, at home, it doesn't matter. So unless he's got sleeper agents, you know, at every single ballpark, you know, across the U.S. and in, in Toronto, then this, this is a stupid, stupid discussion. To say the very least. But that leads to a discussion, looks like, of the actual stealing of signs. Uh, this, is, this isn't the first time a team has been accused of doing such a thing. I mean, even going back to the – I remember there was, a huge, there was a documentary about the 51 Giants who were supposedly stealing signs at the polo field uh, during, the, uh, during their season-ending uh, uh, series against the Dodgers. And – this and plus, you know, teams take precautions to this. Why do you think they change signs around when someone's on second base, for example? Uh, why, you know, why do they cover their mouths when they're talking with their gloves, that sort of thing? So, when it comes to stealing signs, right. Right. if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. Has always been an adage used in sports. So, would it bother you if the Tigers actually were stealing signs? Well, no. I mean, it's part of the game. There's that book that I've talked about before. I'll recommend it again. I think it's called The Baseball Code or mm-hmm. The Baseball Codes. Um, which kind of covers all the the unwritten rules of the game. It's a very mm-hmm. fascinating read. And one of the things they talk about or the author talks about is, is sign stealing yeah. and, and basically saying, yes, it's absolutely part of the game. It's even respected yeah. uh, by the opponent. It's a skill. Within, <laughs> within, within certain parameters. Right. And if you remember, there was an article written last year about Miguel Cabrera and just how awesome of a hitter he is. Mm-hmm. One of the things that they mentioned in the article is mm-hmm. that when Mickey gets on second base, it only takes him three or four pitches before he's got the signs and yeah. will have them relayed back to the team. So mm-hmm. they know that he's doing it and that players do this. But there's certain, uh, you know, protocol or rules of etiquette that you can't break. So, for example, if the catcher catches the batter looking back. Oh, yeah, that's a big at, one. To the signs, mm-hmm. that's, uh, you're going to get hit for that. Yeah. Because that's breaking the code. Steal signs, fine, but do it the right way. And I, I think, you know, obviously having a plant in center field with binoculars would qualify as, you know, breaking the, the protocol. You, you know, you have to rely on your base runners to do it. So. Is that the black helicopters flying over right now? Yeah, see, I'm talking about conspiracies and sign stealing, and they're, they're coming after me now. <laughs> yeah, and, um, I would just think it would be awesome if uh, the next time sales starts, how's it be next year, that they have a binocular giveaway day? 
God, that would be, uh, you know, even if they don't, I just think the fans should take it yes. upon themselves. Everybody bring a pair and just, uh, you know, I mean, good Lord. Even if he did see somebody in center mm-hmm. field with binoculars, Al, you know how many times I've gone to games, mm-hmm. I had to sit in the outfield and brought binoculars. Yeah. Yeah, of course I do. Yeah, of course I do. Yeah, and the, I can't see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And the you other know, question you... is, Sale was lights out for for five plus innings. I guess the Tigers sucked at stealing signs for the first part of the game. That's right. They're stealing the signs and can't do anything with it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's just it's so stupid. But yeah. I mean, I've seen fans with binoculars, but it's only because you're just trying to get a better view of the action. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know. Uh, also, I'll say it was. A, this is one of the reasons why I really enjoy baseball, just because of ridiculous things like this that I don't think you would see in any other sport. They're definitely not in football well, yes. where everything's so serious <laughs> and things like that. Uh, you right. know, there's just obviously cheating goes on in every sport. I mean, every single sport. Uh, and like I said, I find, you know, uh, I mean, good lord, just look at the that the caps of some pitchers. That ain't sweat that's around that's uh, on their damn caps. That's it's, it's that's a unnamed substance usually. You know things like that. Yeah, you know, yeah. look at all the pine tar you see smeared on everything everywhere. You know, uh, with ball players, that's there for a reason. You know, it's as you put it. You no, know, it's it's part of what baseball is. Uh, trying to get, I guess, the as he, as they would call it in racing, uh, the unfair advantage. Right. And Ty Cobb was a master at that, mm-hmm. you know, and always saying, I'm, I'm always trying to look for the edge, you know, and he would fake an injury to, only to steal a base, mm-hmm. you know, and that, that sort of thing. And, you know, like I said, it, it's part of the baseball culture. It's a very mm-hmm. weird little part of the subculture that everybody knows this stuff goes yeah. on. But you, as long as you're not blatant about it, everyone's yeah. OK with it. Yeah. You know, fine. Mm-hmm. Use the pine tar as a pitcher. But, man, if you're going to wear it out on your face mm-hmm. where everybody can see it, then, yeah. you know, then we have to complain kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, or, you know, Joe Nacre pull, opens up, pulls out his pocket, and out comes like a file, you know, things like that. You know? <laughs> That's so, right. <laughs> so, so you guys got to be good about it. But, uh, and again, as you put it, it's, it's, it, it makes a sometimes boring game, to, or I wouldn't say boring, I guess uh, an uneventful game, a tight game. All of a sudden, it, when it elevates it to high comedy, you got to love baseball. All right. We're now into the final weekend of the season, Hook Slide. Let, let me just throw oh, this up. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Wrap that up just uh, for, for our listeners. If you want to get the book, it's called The Baseball Codes. Mm-hmm. Beanballs, Sign Stealing, and Bench Clearing Brawls, The Unwritten Rules of America's Pastime, and it's by Jason Turbo. Highly recommended yeah. if you want some off-season reading. You must be in tight with uh, Tiger's Librarian on Twitter. Uh, very tight, <laughs> yes. yes. All right. Uh, we're into the final weekend of the season now. Uh, Tigers took game one of their four-game series against the Twins in really a very workmanlike game. Uh, you know, A couple home runs, Max Scherzer. Uh, was you know didn't have his best stuff had had good enough stuff to get through the game and the bullpen was this is what the Tigers envisioned you know Soria in the seventh Chamberlain in the eighth Nathan in the ninth nine up nine down I mean that that was awesome to see so as of now magic number is two Tigers hold their own destiny and realistically uh, you know if they take well if they take three or four it doesn't matter what the Royals do if they split uh, the Royals need to sweep. To take the division. So right now, is it locked down? No. Could could a worst case scenario case go down? Yeah. You know, we've been here before, obviously. But I really do think that the Tigers got uh, are where we expected them to be. You know, I just don't think people expected the Royals to be this good. I think that's the difference right. in the season. 
Right. And uh, it's funny because I was just talking with my wife last night and watching the game and discussing the magic numbers and what's the earliest they could yeah. clinch. And we're actually going out of town this weekend. So mm -hmm. we really botched that plan because yeah. we're going to be go uh, gone for all, all three games. I'm not going to get to see mm -hmm. the clinch, which sucks. Yeah. But anyway, I, I digress. The, the point is we were talking about it and she said, doesn't it seem like they should have clinched by now? Mm -hmm. And I said, the funny thing is, if you look at last year, when, when we felt like the Tigers were just, they were dominant, they were in first place for like 90% of the season, it was a walkaway season, they still didn't clinch last year mm -hmm. until uh, there were only three games left. Right. So we're not necessarily way off target. Mm -hmm. uh, their, their clinch date was yesterday, actually, with, you know, the, the 25th of September, and with, with three games left to go. So, yeah, you know. It's a, like you said. It's a weird way to get there, but they're they're right on track. Yeah, yeah. They're they're going to ultimately end up winning a uh, ninety-ish games, a little bit over probably. Because what they're and actually, you know, they're nineteen games over five hundred. I mean, that's not a shabby season by any means. Uh, and no. obviously, the central turned out to be a lot better than anybody anticipated. With two teams, and they're going to going to finish over five hundred. I mean, you know, three that's... teams total. The other, the second and third place, over five hundred as well. The funny thing is, is that, you know, for all the years that we said the Central is the worst division, mm -hmm. uh, th this year, it's it's both the AL and the NL Central teams yeah. that are, are have not yet locked down their division. The Cardinals still haven't locked theirs down yet. They're going to go right down to the wires. So are the Tigers. Mm -hmm. Both the AL and NL Central are going to end up with two teams mm -hmm. in the playoffs. Yeah. So guess what? I, mean, I think this year that the Central divisions, both American and national, mm -hmm. turned out to be the, the better divisions. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you look at uh, how... You no, know, the the East was a the Warriors went out in a walk. Uh, I mean, they have a they have a thirteen game lead right now over the Yankees. Uh, yeah, but it's all comparative. Yeah, exactly. You know, you know. when you, when you look at the the uh, differential between the first place teams mm -hmm. and the second place teams in the other divisions, you end up with like, you know, the first place team has a win percentage of like six hundred, and then the next closest competitor is like four fifty. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The There's Yankees, a lot of that. Going yeah, like on. the Yankees are barely over five hundred, and they're in second place. So you get you know that sort of thing. So there's a, uh, I guess we'll put it this way. You know, when it comes down to it. The Tigers are who we thought they were, in the words of Denny Green. Uh, you know, a team that's going to win 90-some games, going to finish in first place, going to make the playoffs, and should have a very, very good chance of making a long playoff run because of that starting pitching staff. Pure and simple. I, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm a little more jaded about the, the postseason, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just, just because of the struggles that we've seen all year with the bullpen. Mm -hmm. And you know that's a huge factor. Yeah. Uh, the starting pitching is, is your, your centerpiece, yes, mm -hmm. but ours has been a little inconsistent mm -hmm. uh, with David Price's kind of up and down, you know, outings. Max Scherzer has been on and off. Verlander seems to be coming around, but he's been a question mark. So, uh, you know, it, it is going to come down to the bullpen, I think, on, on several occasions. Mm -hmm. And that, that leaves me a little uncomfortable with how well the Tigers will fare, um, say, if they get to the ALCS and have to face the Angels. Yeah. It's it's a little troublesome, but well, you know anything can happen. Yeah. So. Well, let me ask you this: uh, the Tigers, if the way things are likely going to uh, fall out, uh, game one of a best of five ALDS series will start Thursday, October second. Obviously, the I believe the wild card games will be on Tuesday. Uh, the Tigers will be in Baltimore on the, on that Thursday. They play the Orioles. Uh, any worries about starting on the road? Because to be honest with you. The Tigers have played better on the road this year. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, so that makes me feel pretty confident about their chances. 
Yeah, they, they've been better on the road than at home, mm-hmm. so that's that's not the issue. Uh, you know, again, I wrote about this last year. Home field advantage has usually meant nothing mm-hmm. to the Tigers in the postseason. They've been actually a little better um, on the road in the postseason. Um, and in terms of the way that they've handled the Orioles all season long, no no real concerns there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I get a little more nervous about uh, you know the Angels just because some of the past history there. I mean, this is the first season that the Tigers have you know. Well, the, the first time they won a game in like two years, mm-hmm. you know, against yeah. the Angels. So, and um, watching Houston Street close games for the Angels has been kind of a little bit scary to watch too. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if it comes down to a war of the bullpens, you know, yeah, I, I think we're okay with the Orioles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and the Orioles have some issues with uh, Chris Davis suspended. Uh, Manny Machado is out for the year. I mean, they're missing some huge pieces on that. Roster. Matt Weeders. Yes, and yeah, out. exactly. So, yeah, and I think that's going to – that kind of underscores the point that the Orioles clinched and have this huge lead, yeah. you know, but only because of the, the poor performance of the rest of the teams in the East. Mm-hmm. So I think they're going to meet their match in, in the Tigers. But uh, not not to spoil the show, but uh, hopefully next week we are going to get to talk with uh, with Mark over at Camden Chat, mm-hmm. you know, the, the uh, sister site of uh, Bless Your Boys, the Orioles site there. So we'll, we'll get to talk about all that next week, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, it's uh... – yeah, it, it, it's going to. Uh, it, it will be an interesting matchup to say, to, to say the very least. I, and I do like the Tigers' chances, but you know, of, of advancing past that. But I, again, nothing's locked down, nothing's in stone yet. But regardless of where the Tigers finish and who, where they start the playoffs, who do you want to start Game One? Do you want Max Scherzer or David Price? And for that matter, do you think you're are you moving Justin Verlander up in a rotation ahead of Rick Porcello now? Hmm. A very interesting question. Yeah. Uh, Scherzer price. Um, that really, it doesn't, I, I don't care either way, either way. I think you get equal results, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, whoever you go with there moving Verlander ahead of Porcello. Probably not. I no. don't know. If you look at the September numbers though, Porcello has been very, very, very up and down in the, over his last few starts. So he's been very, in, he, uh, has in, he's inconsistently, He's consistently inconsistent as of late, if you ask me. I, to be honest with you, I can see Osmus thinking Verlander's a big game, big money pitcher. Uh, Porcello oh, has, you know, has, has very few, comparatively, because he's always been the guy who got bounced to the, to the bullpen out of the rotation. He doesn't have the starting experience in the playoffs that Scherzer, Price, and Verlander do. I could see Osmus making that move and saying, "Okay, Rick, you're my four, you're my number four starter. You're only going to get one start in, in, in like in the first round, for example." Well, I mean, I could see Osmus doing a lot of stupid things <laughs> because we've watched him kind of mismanage the bullpen all mm-hmm. year and do weird things with defensive replacements and pinch hitters that shouldn't be pinch hitting. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that's two questions. If you're asking me what I think is going to happen. Yeah. And then I, I could see him putting Verlander in there ahead of Porcello just to, you know, mm-hmm. for the sake of tradition or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. You know, he'll he'll go back to Verlander has more experience. Mm-hmm. He's the big game money pitcher, you know, yeah. all, all of that. But what should happen? You know, Porcello has been dynamite. This is the guy that's mm-hmm. thrown two complete game shutouts this year. Yeah. Uh, he's incredibly efficient when he's on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is a guy that I think could be throwing a no hitter. You know, just about any time he goes out, if he's got that that low, you know, sinker working and he's mm-hmm. inducing a lot of quick ground ball outs. This, I mean, he's amazing. Yeah. Verlander is, uh, you know, coming around. Yeah. You know, so you ask me what I would do, I would definitely put Porcello ahead. Yeah, it's uh, I, I, and, and you can also go matchups. You know, we haven't really looked that in depth into the 
uh, Orioles lineup at this point, you know, it's very possible Porcello may end up being a better uh, matchup, for example, than Verlander or one of the other pitchers would as well. So, uh, Osmus is definitely going to have some decisions to make, especially uh, if the Tigers end up not clinching until the last, no, like the final day of the season or something like that. So he can't start to juggle his rotation ahead of time like the Tigers have been able to in, over the past few years. So there are some, uh, uh, let's, just, let's just say Osmus may surprise us with what he does, but uh, it's going to be, well and, well, and the other factor is, Rick Porcello has also thrown a career-high innings. He's, oh, he's about 30 innings more than he's ever thrown before right now. What, I, what I've seen of Osmus is that he does tend to prefer the experience argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he's played that constantly during September. Yes, yes. Yes, and we saw that recently with you know Don Kelly getting an at-bat instead of you know one of the stronger hitters like Moya. Mm-hmm. And his argument was, Don Kelly was my only experienced bat. Yeah. <laughs> and you, I still uh, laugh okay. when I hear that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I get that he's had more MLB seasons, yeah. but give me talent over experience every time, you know, mm. but uh, if that's the, the mindset, then you may very well see Verlander get the experience card played and yeah. we'll get the start over Porcello. Yeah. And we'll see how this plays out because uh, it's very possible. David Price could be pitching the last day of the regular season, which could obviously likely then make uh, Max Scherzer your game on starter. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. It's, uh, between those two, it's pretty much a coin flip. You know, I, no, you, know and, and like, you know, half a dozen of one, six of the other. It really is. Like like you said, the 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 way the season plays out will have some impact on that because if the Tigers clinch tonight, yeah, or even Saturday, it's possible the price will get bumped. Yeah, you're right. You know, and they'll they'll save him up for the game one start. You never know. Yeah, we'll see Lobstein uh, and guys like that pitching over the next couple of days. So it's it's it'll, but I'll just I'm I'm with you here. Just get this over and done with. No, clinch it. Do it already. Come on. Yes, enough. This is enough. I'm tired. I want this. I want playoffs to start. Damn it. So. That's right. All right. Let's wrap this up because I know we're running a little long because of, uh, of our excellent interview with Dan Dickerson. So um, anything you'd like to add before we wrap up this podcast? Uh, boy, no, not really. Um, like I said, we're going to be uh, out of town for this weekend, and that's kind of bumming me out because, you know, you, you invest in a season yeah. like this and go game after game after game, and to, to kind of miss the clinching game is kind of a bummer. But... Well, it happens. You know, I'm, I have Red Wings tickets uh, that are going to fall, I think, on game two of the ALDS. So. Oh. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So. Well, that's it's, what, it's, it's yeah. funny because we we planned everything this year around the baseball season. Yeah. We, as soon as they release the postseason schedule, we put the dates in the mm-hmm. calendar and see if we can make sure we're not planning, you know, dinner outings or whatever. Yeah. But we we had this out of town trip planned months ago, and yeah. I just realized that it's it's going to conflict with the with the possible clinch. So when it happens, you know, give me a call and uh, mm-hmm. we'll 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 tip our champagne glasses uh, <laughs> virtually. Yeah, um, no kidding. Just, and just to kind of uh, one more reminder, mm-hmm. as, as I mentioned, alluded to earlier, Mark Brown from Camden Chat. Uh, which is the SB Nation sister site to Bless You Boys for the Orioles, uh, has agreed to join us next week on the podcast to talk about the uh, the division matchup, should that come to fruition. Mm-hmm. So yeah. looking forward to talking with Mark next week. Exactly. So with that, let's wrap this puppy up. So uh, once again, we'd like to thank Dan Dickerson for taking time out of his very busy schedule. Uh, obviously, we were talking to him. He was likely on his way to Comerica Park. Uh, he's probably, who knows for all we know he's probably talking to Brad Osmus right now so <laughs> with that yes. you know, so thank you Dan for being on the podcast it was a lot of fun and, uh, and, 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 and we'll hopefully have him back again uh, also uh, 
Be, follow us on Twitter at, at BlessYouBoys.com. Uh, where am I thinking? At BlessYouBoys. The short site is BlessYouBoys.com. And we'll have updates as to who will be on the podcast, things like that. Um, you can find me on Twitter at BigLBYB. And, of course, Hookslide. How about yourself? Uh, at HookslideBYB on Twitter. Indeed. So, with that, let's wrap this thing up. So, uh, when next time we're talking to you, it'll be the playoffs, the postseason. Uh, they'll be playing for all the marbles, or in the word of Brent Musburger, they'll be playing for all the Tostitos. So we'll see you next week. So until then, this is Al Beaton saying good afternoon and good luck along with Hookslide. Free Annabelle Sanchez. He will be freed on the next Pleasure Voice podcast. <laughs> That'll get him out of the old ballpark. That's good advice. Thanks, big fella.